Practices. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Today on the the program, I have a prolific scholar and practitioner. And that's what I'm really, really excited to talk about with Mr. Well, Dr. John Dugan. And, and he, has, he has this really great story of an individual who spent years studying and writing about leadership, and he is now uh, in a different context than academia. And listeners are going to know that name, John Dugan, uh, for the work that he's done. And I can't wait to jump into this conversation, John. Why don't you share a little bit about you? What I want to start with with you is your path to leadership studies. How did you, what was the, what was your undergrad? What was your, how did you get to Maryland? And let's start there. Does that sound good? Sure. That sounds great. Cool. So I feel like my path to leadership was really circuitous and absolutely indirect. So I grew up in a family in the South side of Chicago, uh, very working class family. We didn't use the term leadership. Leadership was some distant other. It wasn't like something that was associated with our identities or who we were. Yeah. I never remember a time where we talked about what it meant to be a leader in the family. Wow. We talked a lot about what it meant to do good and what doing good looks like and feels like and why it was so important. But leadership was not a word that resonated. And in fact, Scott, when I think about my experiences in school, whether it's grade school, high school, college, leadership was actually something for me that was more associated with popularity and the elite. So it was how do you get elected? How do you position yourself, which wasn't always aligned with doing good. So for me, I think, you know, leadership wasn't really introduced until I met this fabulous person named Dr. Susan Komabaz, who wrote this great book that I read as an undergrad. Uh, I was skeptical. I end up, and actually in undergrad, I was at John Carroll. So your institution. Yes, yes. I mean, I walked that campus for four years. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So the good news is I was introduced to Susan's work while I was there. The bad news is I didn't see leadership even during undergrad as something that landed for me as something I saw myself in. Yeah. And so then I go to grad school. My uh, degrees at University of Maryland are counseling and personnel services. I work with Susan Kohomvaz. She starts to begin to shift my thinking about what leadership is about. At the time, I was much more interested in student activism and social justice and saw those as completely different spheres. Wow. And yeah, completely different um, with very little intersection. For me, uh, activism was more episodic. It was looking for more structural systemic change, whereas leadership was about maintenance of the status quo. And so all of that gets disrupted as an undergrad and then very particularly at University of Maryland as a master's student. And then went off to work at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I ran our co-curricular leadership programs and then really began trying to merge those interests uh, around social justice, leadership, 
look at those intersections and then went back to Maryland for my PhD and was in academia for 10 years after yeah. that. Yeah. And now you've transitioned, you've transitioned out of academia and talk about your, your current role and maybe some of the observations you've had of, we, we were talking about before we started the transition of talking about leadership and actually leading in an incredible organization, incredible organization. Yeah, I uh, feel very blessed to be where I'm at now. The, the shift, I would say, has been unexpected. I think, you know, for many of us as academics, you get to a point, uh, and maybe this happens maybe two or three times in a career, and that inflection point is just about what are you doing? Yeah. And so I was feeling this really indirect effect on the world. So working with brilliant, wonderful students who are going to go out and do brilliant, wonderful things with other brilliant young people. But I wasn't feeling like I could get traction on the research. So here I am doing this research, creating evidence of what we ought to be doing in the field to, for demonstrable impact. Yep. But I can't actually go out and necessarily do that beyond a very narrow sphere of interest. And so that tension was really what catalyzed the shift. Mm-hmm. I had just gotten full professorship and had been working with the Aspen Institute for about a year on evaluation and curriculum design. And the opportunity came to uh, go there full time. And uh, as one of my mentors said, wait, what? <laughs> You're going, where to do what? You just got full professorship. Uh, and I was like, I know this might be a midlife crisis. I'm not sure. <laughs> let's, let's go try. And the appeal was the work I was seeing and the evaluation we were doing had such demonstrable impact that there was no question that what was happening at the Institute was what I was trying to ask people to engage in through mm-hmm. my research or the direction I, or the compass I was giving people to say, this is what... Um, we could be achieving if we we worked collectively, if we actually drove on high impact practices, if we thought about what this work could look like. So I ended up writing my last book, getting full professorship and bouncing like yes. literally a few months later. So tell me about tell me about the work that you're doing now. Well, for listeners, so let's talk a little bit about the Aspen Institute and some of the background there. Sure. And then some of the work that you're doing now that to your point, you feel is having a very, very different impact out there in the world. I'd love to hear about that. Thank you. Uh, so there's a video. I, I, don't, I don't know if you this will resonate for you, Scott, but particularly as a, at a mission-driven institution with Jesuit value systems, that's the system I grew up in. So the Catholic Church provided this value set, and that's framed almost, I think, every experience I've had as an adult. So when there's mission alignment, and I see this drive for purpose, it it really enhances my sense of affinity and purpose in the work. Uh, The Aspen Institute is one of these organizations where the first time I got a call uh, from the executive vice president to say, hey, I want to talk with you. I'll be in Chicago. I was like, okay, great. And then the night before, Googled and was like, oh, wow, I should have probably Googled well before the night before. (laughs) Or not Googled. Maybe it's good that you didn't, right? (laughs) Right, right. Maybe it's better that way. (laughs) So it's like 10 p.m. the night before this meeting, and I'm Googling and thinking, I knew I heard of them, but how did I hear of them? And I think that's a lot of people's reactions to the Aspen Institute. The name is vaguely familiar, but no one's quite sure what we do. Here's sort of like the elevator version. Formed after World War II, uh, business leaders come together to to say, what is the good society and how do we prevent 
a catastrophe from like World War II from happening again? Can we rely on government alone or should we as a people begin to push and exercise our muscles to co-create this good society? Okay. And so a set of gatherings start to happen in Aspen. The town builds up around it in some ways. And Aspen becomes known for its tradition of convening. So bringing people together across vast ideological differences, value set differences, identity differences to think about what is the good society. Those seminars then become the version of what Aspen Institute is today. Most people know us for the Ideas Festival. I usually say that it was like TED Talks before TED Talks. (laughs) Uh, But we're known for looking at what are the most promising ideas that are out there? How do we stimulate the generation of those ideas based on putting wildly divergent people experiences and thinking in the same room? And then how do we translate that into actual action and impact? So it's not just ideas generation, but what do you do? And then we have three big stools. So we have sort of a policy side of the house that's massive, working with everything from water security to um, education and society. And then we have a public program side that does quite a bit of work particularly in the Roaring Fork Valley of of Colorado, around bringing people into community and conversation. And then the part of the house that I'm uh, lodged in, and that's the leadership division. And so we work with, uh, on the adult side, over 3,500 adult fellows across the globe, each of which has a venture of significant importance and impact, looking at how from their sector they can transform the world. My portfolio is working with the same set of assumptions, but with youth. So we work with up to the age of 24. And we have a portfolio of programs that are looking at disrupting how we think about leadership in general. And so that ranges from, you know, uh, I call them a Kellerman South seminar. So really deep leadership studies work, working with uh, Canon as well as disrupting Canon around how do these writings really stimulate how we think to experiential education, to problem-based learning, to field-based work in communities where we co-create curriculum to then deliver against what we know is measurable learning and development. Yeah. So in some ways, it's an extension of your scholarship, right? But but almost putting it into action. Is that, is that an <laughs> accurate description? Scott, this is like the terrifying part. <laughs> Thank you for making that like super real for me. <laughs> yes. So and in other words, on this podcast, I'm going to do it now. It's the, oh shit. Okay. Let's try and make this happen. <laughs> right. Right. This is like the podcast that cannot go to my board or my boss. Cause I think you just like set the bar of, you know, you studied this for 15 years. Now can you actually go do it or not? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, so talk about that a little bit. Talk about some of, your reflections on that experience and, and what you're learning. It'd be a lot of fun to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I let, let me maybe take a step back. So one of the things that I think, I remember a conversation that you and I had years ago. Gosh, it had to have been going on five years now. And it was a one-off conversation that always stuck with me. Hmm. And you asked a really interesting question about you know, I'm gonna boil it down to like the the most crude version. You basically said, so what? Like hmm. What is the point of all of this training, all of this development, all of this leadership education? What actually shifts other than human capacities? And that was a really sort of like worm in my my brain that was like, yes, but then it leads to resilience and it leads to this. And 
I'm like, but do we know that for real? Or do we just know that as a hypothesis? And is that even sufficient on its own? So just because someone has resilience, do they exercise it? Uh, um, just because someone has the ability to co- collaborate or ideate, does it mean they do anything with it? And so that worm sort of like was going all over my brain around you know, leadership for what? Yeah. And you know, if you think about 15 years of scholarship publications on what actually moves the needle on leadership development, and I'm still thinking about well, why would we want to move the needle anyway? That Mm -hmm. felt really troubling. And so at the Institute, this is where I've had such a great playground to actually try and respond to that question. So we're learning things like a byproduct of leadership development and really deep work around self-awareness, value sets, uh, personal responsibility leads to increased leadership efficacy, leads to resilience, which in turn leads to degree completion. Wow. We are able to sort of link the ways in which people engage in resilience to their protective factors and their persistence in, particularly in, in contexts that where they would experience significant stereotype threat. Yeah. So that's been a really powerful learning. And then getting outside of a higher ed context allowed, I think, just a complete transformation of how we think about the delivery of leadership education. Uh, so there was no longer sort of this, I would say, bifurcation of, you know, here's leadership studies in a more traditional way. Here is sort of leadership training in a traditional way. It's allowed, allowed us to pick and choose all of the pieces that we see that work as levers of learning and then build them together in a cohesive way and then differentiate. So we know, okay, this program design works in the Mississippi Delta, but does it work in Newark, New Jersey? And the answer is logically, no, you've got to shift and pivot and think. And so it really has been just fun having the opportunity to do that. I want to share with you. I think this will, you'll be like, wait, what? So (laughs) good. This was the this was like the lever for me to leave. Okay. Academia. Mike Bezos and Jackie Bezos, Bezos Family Foundation, wonderful philanthropists around education and youth development. They have a program with the Aspen Institute called Aspen Challenge. Problem-based learning goes into high schools around the country, sets up community-based problems as identified by the community, eight-week playbook to look at how do we actually move the needle and design something that would be an intervention with meaningful, sustainable change. Wow. Remind you, this, this is high school students. They're high school students. And they're coming up, high school students. They're coming up with brilliant community-based interventions. They're demonstrating leadership as both a process to get to that intervention and leadership as civic engagement. So the actual enactment of leadership simultaneously. Yeah. Really thoughtful playbook. So we measure data from this program eight weeks, and we find that the rate of learning is equivalent to or exceeds the rate of learning from exposure to a full year of college. Let me say that again. So in eight weeks, we can accomplish the same amount of growth that it would take the average college student a full year to accomplish, or we exceed that Wow! across about eight core outcomes. That's how potent the program is. And then we looked at the durability of that, and we saw that because of the protective factors it built, that they carried with, and this became a catalytic experience for them, that led to more experiences, more opportunities, and then continued growth. So it creates this 
really beautiful impact that, you know, like the, I'll tie this back. The first paper that Susan Komabaz and I wrote coming out of the multi-institutional study of leadership found that basically formal leadership programs had no impact or a negative impact. And I was like, great. I'm like not, I'm in my first year as an academic and I'm going to publish this. Like I'm going to be run out of the field. So here we have like the exact opposite, an example of a program that is defined structure, defined norms, not created in a way that was sort of grounded in the literature, yeah. yet has this massive impact. And so that's where a lot of, you know, my thinking is now is how do you scale that? Yeah. How do you replicate that? Yeah. And then how do we create similar patterns in other experiences? Uh, so, okay. A couple of things. So, yeah. For listeners and me, (laughs) (laughs) define protective factors, just so we're all on the same page. Yeah. So in psychology, protective factors are those things that help buffer against external threat. Okay. So think of like the internal belief systems that say, hmm, that's not about me. That's about the other person. The cognitive complexity to be able to see beyond dualities, to say, okay, this person who has authority, this teacher, this coach, this police officer, this you know, faith leader, they may have authority, but that doesn't make them right. And so just because they have a leader title doesn't mean their perception of me guides who I am. Yes. And so you know, it's really about building those things that help sustain. I uh, share a quick story. Mike Bezos is perhaps one of the most wonderful men I've ever met. So most people aren't familiar with his backstory. Came to the United States um, from Cuba after the revolution, was put on a boat and sent here as part of the Pedro Pan program and really worked for many, many years trying to overcome adversity, build a life, build a sense of direction and contribute. And so then his son turns around and becomes Jeff Bezos. And here's this family that continues to give back in powerful ways. And I sat with Mike one of the first times I met him. And you could see in his eyes, he was like, I don't know what to call it. People don't understand or haven't been able to sort of wrap their head around why we've structured the program this way. But here's what it feels like. And here's what I want a young person to feel. If they go out and have a teacher who tells them, they're not smart enough. A boss who says they can't think fast enough. I want them to know that the problem likely doesn't lie with them. Wow. That perhaps that's about the other person. That's a protective factor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially today with social media and any number of other factors going on in the context, how important. I, I've never thought of that as a, as a topic and I feel bad about that. I mean, we've talked about resilience. We've talked about, you know, yeah, Angela Duckworth, the grit, and I'm sure those are close cousins, but actively naming that and then building capacity almost to buffer everything you are about to experience, right? For these students, if they're identifying a project and I'd love to go there next, so I'm going to speak for 30 seconds while you can think of your answer as to what, why, be why, why, why is this so impactful in eight weeks, I believe you said. But yes, if we're going to send these students out and they're real projects, there will be, just like in any leadership challenge, any number of different roadblocks and developing those buffers, or you call them psychological buffers, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Developing that, having that conversation, naming that. I think I think I heard Heifetz say I, I attended his eight day eight day 
leadership development program at the Kennedy School of Government. And, and he said something very profound that has always stuck with me. And, you know, he is very provocative. I'm excited to have him on the podcast at some point. But he was being very provocative. I mean, I think a couple of people left the experience after oh, wow. a few days. And, and he, would, he would push a lot of buttons. But he said at one point, I'm not going to pretend, and it wasn't these words, but he said, I'm not going to pretend that leadership is all chocolate bars, warm fuzzies, and daffodils, because it's not. My students are going back home all over the world where it's not safe in some instances to share your voice. And so it was always a very interesting perspective, probably somewhat controversial in circles, because we always talk about creating a safe space. But it's a reality that I think sometimes we in higher ed challenge this. I'd love to have this conversation. But I think sometimes in higher ed, we create such a rosy picture of leadership that we practice touch football when it's actually a game of tackle football at times. And, and having that conversation that you're having, building those, that's critical. I think that's so important. And so what other factors do you think is, are, are really fueling this eight week versus a year? I believe it, by the way. I believe it. I believe yeah, it. I mean, thank you for believing it. <laughs> no, I, intuitively, I believe, I believe it because I did not at first thought. <laughs> I did not. So one of my mentors early on said, "If it's too good to be true, it probably is, and if it's too interesting, the data is probably wrong." And so we've done like data audits and all of these things because I still have this like. Uh, weird, uh, like imposter syndrome that one day someone's going to find out like I didn't do the right metrics on an equation and the whole scale's wrong. And, you know, like my mind goes to like the worst possible place. <laughs> They'll cite this podcast conversation in 2020. Correct. correct. That's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> I'm like, I, didn't, I was just talking out loud. I don't know if that's true. Well, I think it's going to be the opposite, sir. But go ahead. Tell right. me, what were some other factors that you think? Yeah, so like, let's break down the program. So the program in eight weeks does a number of things. First of all, the adults who surround the youth in this process are trained in how to build these very specific capacities. Nice. We don't try and do everything in eight weeks. We really narrow it. So it's agency, how to navigate pathways, social generativity, leadership efficacy, resilience, um, and social perspective taking. Yep. So we really build a robust, high-potency program around those outcomes. Nice. We then train the trainers, which is not like rocket science, but how often are we actually going in and doing true training to prepare someone? Whole, like a robust program to say, where are you in your own developmental trajectory around these outcomes? What does that mean for how you instill or cultivate them in other people? So we really invest a lot of time so that the coaches actually understand their own positioning and then can engage in a way that's values aligned, but also effective. Yeah. Second piece, we really situate the learner uh, in their community. So they are the arbiters of their own experience. And yeah. so we don't say, here's five problems in Chicago. Here's five problems in Cleveland. Yeah. The community identifies the problems. We bring in speakers to then talk about what that looks like and how work is already being done in these areas. And then teams of eight youth pick a challenge that resonates most for their community. Yep. And I think that alignment from a motivational standpoint is just rocket fuel. Yeah. It's not saying you're going to do this. You're going to have sort of a portfolio to pull some. Yep. And then we just go really deep. Part of it is 
if there's two weeks on social perspective taking, then folks are out in the community. They're interviewing people. They're really building a sense of what is empathy and action. What does it mean to actually apply that to a concept? Yep. So it's sort of like the beauty of design thinking mixed with sort of high impact practices from education. And then, you know, the, the, this is the part that Mike identifies as so immeasurable is, you know, at one point he said, people don't understand, like, why do we have this lighting? Why do, when you walk into the Aspen challenge, every young person has their face blown up the size of a poster. Hmm. Every one of those pieces is building those protective factors. Ah. It's sending a sense, you of you have value, we are investing in you. Yeah. And that investment by a distant other creates that protective factor. Yeah. So there's some, you know, we talk about the halo effect. There's a halo effect here. If someone invests in me, I'm more likely to trust an investment in myself. Wow. Eight weeks. I Eight see weeks. it. I see it. Now, the question for me as more of an academic is why, I mean, and let's be clear, in eight weeks, we get a really beautiful bump. It's durable. We still, it's, we're not done at, at the end of eight weeks. There's still much work to do. Yeah. But what is it that prevents us from replicating that mm-hmm. across the country? If you look at MSL data, the vast majority of leadership programs have a minimal or marginal impact. Yep. So what has prevented us 10, 15 years now of folks out there saying, do this, not that, think about this, not that. What, where does that lack of traction come from? And where, where I've been, Scott, more recently is what is the collateral damage of the inability to scale these, these types uh, of measurable impacts? Yeah. And I think the collateral damage is, is big. It's bit, really big. Say more about that. Say more about that. So you mentioned um, earlier some of the sort of, uh, you're going to have to help me here. You you were talking a little bit about sort of like um, what I would call like privilege or access to leadership. When we do this work, we we cannot start from the assumption that there are as equal footing in how we enter into it. So this is all of the work that I did with communities around critical leadership. Yep. Maybe I'll use data to help sort of yeah. explain that. Yeah. Across our programs, pandemic starts, and we're constantly tracking any sort of ebbs or flows in different capacities, one of which is resilience. And we define resilience as the ability to cope in the face of struggle and surmount barriers. Um, so a, a, tr- a traditional psychological definition of it that doesn't put the responsibility on the individual, it's individual plus system. Right. Okay, so... We are going through this process, start of the pandemic, and we see this massive drop in resilience. Not unexpected, but the relative drop between young people who were solidly placed in the socioeconomic ladder sprung right back up. Oh, wow. Clarity of what happens next, assuaging of like anxiety, they bounce right back. But the vast majority of our youth who are youth of color, who are youth who have minoritized identities, youth who are from lower levels of the socioeconomic ladder, they don't rebound. And so we see this sort of tanking of resilience. And I was sitting talking with uh, one of our young participants, and she said something I'll never forget. She said, it's actually not about me. 
it's about my parents. So my parents struggled to get me to this place where I have two jobs and I'm in a two-year college to get a degree. Yeah. And I'm sitting here and I have no clue how to explain to them, let alone myself, what I can do to prevent my dreams from becoming pipe dreams. Wow. After all of the sacrifice. Yeah. And so when you see that drop in resilience, you can't have an equal effect. The equal mitigation technique means that you have folks that will never be mitigated sufficiently to have opportunity. So part of what we do with all of our programs is we surround them with what we call the opportunity ecosystem to prevent collateral damage. Yeah. So that's premised that it takes more than a singular opportunity to surmount the systemic barriers that people are trying to work past through over or dismantle. Yep. It makes the assumption that even attending a leadership training requires a certain set of base needs that allow for it. To attend and be fully present in a session requires a set of base needs. And that those who are most ready potentially to, to effectuate change are held back by a lack of those base needs. So mm-hmm. we have to surround the system in a way that mitigates that as much as possible for folks to reach their potential. Yeah. And, and, you know, my fear right now is with the way the world is in terms of our health, social, uh, economic crises, that we're going to lose an entire generation as collateral damage if mm. we don't mitigate more effectively. That's an entire generation of leaders who don't have, um, you know, the privilege to wait for leadership programs to actually have demonstrable impact. Yeah. Uh, we're wasting their time and we're wasting their time at a period that they need it most. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I just got on a major soapbox. No, 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 no. It's uh, you, you have me thinking, which is why I love having conversations with you. You have me thinking and, and my head's in like seven places. So going back to my first podcast in this series was with Dave Rush and you've written with Dave and you know, Dave well. And, yep. and he said, I, I called that, that episode. I have a fear because, because he said at one point in the conversation, he said, Scott, I have a fear. That, that all this stuff we're doing isn't making a difference. And, and you've now said that as well. I mean, we're 21 episodes in, but you're getting some clues. You have some pretty strong clues as we look at this puzzle. But then you mentioned a little bit ago, kind of this replicability. If we're not surrounding people with those support mechanisms and those, that structure, to your point, we could be doing more damage than good. Almost like hanging this little thing out here, like, hey, look at this, but it's going to be impossible. So sorry, right? Yep. Well, and a great example of that is one of the programs in my portfolio is the Aspen Young Leaders Fellowship. In its original design, it was a one-year program working with with youth, many of whom were from the lowest levels of the socioeconomic ladder. What is a one-year fellowship going to do to demonstrably change someone's life? Uh, And actually, my fear was... What messages is it sending implicitly about if you went through this leadership training, you are, you know, you've earned your button, you've got your certificate. So therefore you ought to be able to succeed when in reality, the barriers just don't melt away. No. And so the things young people are going to experience, they need even more support for. So working with community, part of what our communities writ large across the country told us was we've got to make this 
longer. It has to be a deeper investment for it to actually make any functional change. And that's where we're seeing, you know, really great strides. And part of it is we can't just measure the human capacities. Mm -hmm. We've got to measure the human capacities plus the tangible differences that are made in community. So what is known or done differently? So you've got fellows down in West Helena, Arkansas, and fellows in Clarksdale, Mississippi, leading the first Black Lives Matter uh, rallies. They Mm -hmm. didn't call them protests, but rallies down in the South. Think about the Delta. That is the deep South. And they do it in a way where they go and they get the mayor of the city to endorse this rally. Yeah. And say, yes, let's do this. This is important. They build a coalition. Now, did they meet and are they continuing to have implications for their leadership actions? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not all roses, but their ability to actually do something functional yep. with the skills they learned is tangible. Uh, you have a young person in St. Louis who is really interested about in, uh, you know, she's walking one day past in the heat of the summer, a, um, holding facility, uh, a prison, and here's people yelling about the heat. So they're literally burning up. There's no air conditioning. And so she becomes intrigued about her own generational family story of internment uh, in World War II uh, as Japanese Americans. Yeah. And so then she starts moving through all of the things that are happening in seminar and then begins to think about how do we restructure the system? Cut to the chase. She goes in, does an internship, works with the prison system and comes out with a set of recommendations for functional change on whether um, bail and release needs to have a completely different system of evaluation of assessment of risk that begins to be put into action. And that action piece is, is what I think not doesn't just, you know, prevent collateral damage, but it's demonstrable. Like there's a fundamental difference in society, um, not just in a person. Which is so, which is so powerful, right? I mean, it, it's not people sitting in a room talking about leadership, and I think that's that has to be the experiential nature, and it it just strengthens everything else that you're doing from a programmatic standpoint, from the content. Tell me a little bit about even if it's a one year program, two or three years, how are you preparing learners for the future? Because I imagine at least an implicit goal would be. Are we developing lifelong learners who are going to continue accessing resources that they now have available so that they can continue to promote their own growth, their own development, help their communities? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, there's two things that are at the core of what we do. I had a, uh, a faculty member who also happened to be my advisor, uh, not Susan Comavez in my master's program. This is like a non-Susan story for once. Uh, <laughs> And he said to me, you know, John, isn't you have this interest in leadership development? Isn't leadership development really just personal development? Hmm. And I had this moment like, how dare you? Absolutely not. That is, I'm appalled. I'm aghast. Like, I was truly offended. My like 22 year old self was like, absolutely not. We're changing the world here, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you suggest self-awareness as leadership? Um, You know, retrospectively, my uh, complete reaction was a function of my naivete, uh, as is often the case with me. (laughs) But um, when I think about like what we're doing, part of it requires that really human 
core. So our two cores are equity. Uh, we, you know, the leadership hat and the equity hat are one and the same for me. Okay. Um, for the work that we do. And then the second is the learner stance that this has to be a lifelong journey. Uh, and that then appears in every one of our programs in varying ways. So it's creating a developmental map. It's looking three to five years out. It's learning to self-assess growth and shifts in mindsets so people wow. can see how their shifts in mindset lead to different tactics, different ways of engaging uh, in leadership as a process. It's actually taking the time to really unpack and think about, you know, not just retrospectively, where have you been, but forward projecting, where do you want to be? And then, you know, I think critical leadership plays a huge role in this because it necessitates critical self-reflection. Yeah. And if you're doing that work, you're constantly in a state of, I don't want to say disequilibrium because it's not quite that, but let's say openness to yeah. feedback and input. Yep. So those become core skills. Yeah. Yeah. And openness to, to, to challenging your own thinking and so critical. And again, as I told you before we started today, I, I've learned so much from, from this podcast that has, it's challenged me to stay in a state of almost disequilibrium at times because I'm, okay, I'm going to go read this or I hadn't explored this literature and I need to, to have, have a peek at that because I think and I've said it before on this podcast, but that's one reason I love our work because we have to have a command of so many different bodies of literature. But even as you were speaking, I was thinking of the, the work. Have you read any Kay Anders Erickson? Have you read Peak? I haven't. Okay. No. I'm going to send you a book. I'm going to send a book to you. Okay. Okay. But it's another, it's another lens on this whole conversation, this whole topic. So, John, we're, we're almost at 45 minutes, which is kind of over time. Anything Which else? Well, here, so, so this is called, no, it's been awesome. This is called practical wisdom for leaders. So what are a couple things that if I'm an aspiring leader, what are some things to have on my radar? And if I'm a leadership educator, based on your experiences, your research, what are a couple things that an educator should have on their radar? And then we'll kind of land the plane. I have a speed round, a lightning round for okay. you. All right, I'm ready. That's coming, so get ready for that. But for now, just uh, those two questions. Okay. Practical tips. I'll give you three. Yeah. Um, and some of this is distilled from data and some of it's from the reality of having to play in the messiness of science says this, but now I'm actually doing it. Uh, <laughs> so one is protective factors, like not surprising. You can't build all of these leadership values, knowledge, and skills without also building the protective factors so that when someone gets in the arena, yeah, they know when to step out. They know when to step forward. They know when to fight. They know when to play. You've got to build the protective factors, and not it. just resilience, but that internal belief set. I love uh, it. Second, learning to differentiate power and ideology in program design. So, you know, in higher ed, I would argue one of our great faults is that what you started to lay out, Scott, which is that we treat leadership as an inherent good. And so you've got to deconstruct that and help people get to their own. So introduce Machiavelli, not as isn't this bad, but where in your life have you been Machiavellian? Yes. And let's actually encounter where that actually worked for you yep. and how you sit with that. How does that actually feel? Is it okay? Is it not? Is there an appropriate time? Rather than taking this lens of it's all good. Yes. Um, I think we have to explore all sides, not just as, uh, something someone else does, but something that we have engaged into. Yeah. And then, you know, my third tip is 
anytime we're doing this work, there is a robust set of knowledge. And there, the number of times I pull out a Dave Rosh article and I'm like, wait, I'm working on motivation. I need to think about this. Or I pull out something from Corey Kadama or any number of scholars yeah. is like daily because every one of our scholars brings something different. But if you can actually pull the two or three things and apply them instead of applying everything, that has made a world of difference. Yeah. I realize yeah. I contributed to some of the practical insanity by saying, okay, here's 12 things to do and here's 10 more and don't do this, but do this. Distilling it down to get to the, to the simplicity on the other side of complexity allows us to then see what is it that actually moves the needle. And yeah. so figuring one or two things out that you want to move the needle on rather than trying to move the whole thing. Yeah. I loved that phrasing. Simplicity on the other side of complexity. It is absolutely it? not mine. It's not mine. And I forgot who said it originally. So I have just... What, like, I, may call, I may call the podcast that. I don't know. This, I was, that was really cool. Simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think you're exactly right. I think at times I also think about just the scaffolding of how sometimes you're you, you're so correct we throw so much at a learner we put so much into motion that none of it has any chance in hell of sticking it's literally like you know putting me sitting me down in a cockpit and then telling me a bunch of stuff and i i have no i'm gonna have no ability to probably remember one of the second things you said to me and we're not it's not gonna go well right it's just not so Scott, how one, of the thing, one of the things I love about you is that I can think about all of these years and, you know, we know each other, we're not close friends, but we've been in relationship for at least a decade, if not yes. more. Yep. Yep. You are a forecaster. So you ask questions of the field and it's why I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because you ask questions before the field asks them. Hmm. And so I realizing even just in this conversation, what you just said is something is a conversation we had years ago. So I need to listen better to you and everyone. I mean, very seriously though, like it's a joke, but at the same time, it's not because if you listen to the questions you're asking on this podcast, that's what we should all be attending to because guaranteed five years from now, it's going to be the topic du jour or the stressor that if we had started five years earlier, we would have a better sense of or could wrap our hands around more. Well, John, the feeling is mutual. I mean, I, I, I always enjoy our conversations. And this has been awesome because, I, again, you're, you're transitioning from that space of, of the, the research, the scholarship, the writing. And I know you're going to continue that writing and report on the results and, and continue that research. But you're, you're making that difference that you spoke of and helping learn how we do this better to your point, how we replicate it. Uh, that's just, it's incredibly valuable work. Incredibly. I, I hope you sleep well at night because that's awesome. And, and I can't wait to it. And maybe you have published some of your findings and I would love to know where we can find those and I could highlight those, but I can't wait to, to reflect on what you write about as you make sense of everything you're experiencing because it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. I uh, am excited to do that with some of our young participants, our community members, and get some of that out there in their voices too, because that would, that will make it all the more resonant. I hope. I love it. I love it. So John Dugan, what are you streaming, listening to, or reading anything on the radar right now that's stood out for you? 
Yeah. So streaming, I mean, it's just true crime documentaries. Like you got to offset the sense of impending doom with something that's more tangible in terms like less ambiguous doom. So a good true crime, like really eases my mind, which yeah. never something I thought I would say. Out loud. Yes. That was your right, out loud right. voice. Yeah. Uh, Podcast Masters of Scale is like my go-to. Reed Hoffman's one of our fellows at the Aspen Institute. And okay. so you know, his, his podcast just is really helpful for me right now as I think about how do you replicate? How do you build to scale without losing potency? And so I often will have that on in the background as I'm trying to stimulate my own thinking since this is new work for me. Yeah. And then reading, I am right now, um, I've got one book on my plate, uh, amazing voice, uh, non-academic book, but really potent and powerful around story and leadership and how story creates change. Uh, it's uh, You Deserve the Truth by Erica Williams-Simon. Okay. Uh, and then I'm just knee-deep in Aspen Cannon. I go to sort of these stimulus pieces that have meant a lot to me. So Ursula Le Guin's um, Omelas, those who walk away from Omelas is Everyone, it, it should be required reading in any leadership studies course. Uh, Mary Oliver, right now, her poetry has been a gift to help me position myself and think. And Joy Haro, who is the most recent uh, uh, poet Nobel laureate, and her work around what it means to be in community and identity has been incredibly uplifting at a time where I feel like folks need that. Hmm. Well, I, I will be sure to post some of that in the show notes so that other people can find that and access that. John, thank you for the good work you're doing. We really appreciate you being with us today. How, everything you holding on the fort in Chicago? Yep, I got it. I got it here. <laughs> I'm clearly not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing here in Cleveland. So. Right. We're all like in our basements. Like, <laughs> that's it. I literally am in my basement right now. Yes. Yeah. Yep. The most productive years of our lives. <laughs> uh, always a pleasure. Awesome. Take care. Be well, John. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Bye. Like so many episodes of Phronesis, I'm just learning. And I hope you're learning as well. Protective factors. I actually was calling them the wrong thing. And John was kind enough not to correct me in real time. But this whole notion of protective factors, it's something I, I can't wait to explore and learn about more because it makes all the sense in the world. So I titled this episode Praxis, a Theory to Action. And here we have a gentleman who is just on a quest and you can tell he's having fun and you can tell that he has a great passion for this work. It's an adaptive challenge, the, the challenge that, that he's working and so many others are working. How do we help prepare others to be successful when engaging in the activity of leadership? Incredibly difficult work. But you have a gentleman who's coming up with questions, and, and in some cases, the right questions. He's running experiments. He's evaluating through the research, learning, and then we're repeating. And what he's saying so far, there's some very, very interesting results that he's achieved in, in the work that he's doing with the Aspen Institute. Can't wait to learn more from John. Can't wait to talk more with John. And for all of you listening, I hope this episode has sparked some thoughts, some opportunities for reflection, and potentially even some action items for you to explore as well. 
Take care, everybody. Be well. As always, thank you for listening in. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.